Hello, Current Affairs listeners. This is your legal editor, Oren Nimney. I'm here for a very special episode with Erica Eiderhoven, who is a candidate for Middlesex 27th for state representative in Massachusetts. It happens to be the district that I live in. So I'm very excited to, to interview her. She is the progressive candidate in the race and bringing some really good, much needed, bold ideas to the Massachusetts State House. So welcome, Erica. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. I feel like when I go on my COVID walks, I see your signs everywhere. Uh, and, yeah. it's, and it's really <laughs> exciting. So I actually kind of wanted to ask you about the district, though. You know, a lot of your platform, um, which folks should check out on your website, and we can we can plug at the end, but a lot of your platform is very clearly linked to some of the things coming out of the progressive wing of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party, Green New Deal, housing yeah. justice, all this sort of stuff. And so... I guess I'm wondering what specific problems you're seeing in the district or how you're linking those broader mm. national programs to, you know, what, what the constituents in your district that you're talking to every day are needing. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing that I see in the district, well, just to just say a few just quick facts about my district. This district just is very young. I'm actually of the median age of the district mm. um, in terms of residents. I'm 33 years old. It is a district that is 66% tenants. So I'll just start right off the bat to say I think one of the biggest things affecting this district but many parts of you know, urban areas in this country is this gentrification crisis and the displacement crisis. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned that because just this week, there is a apartment building that is facing a 30% rent hike for its residents in the midst of a global pandemic. Right. And so it's just a clear example. And, and just to kind of add insult to injury, right, this building happens to be owned by a billionaire. And he's somebody who's, you know, donated... million, just like that, right? That's like what, almost 200 times the value of this 30 unit apartment building to Mm -hmm. the Mayo Clinic, because he's a very generous guy. Right, sure. Um, But you know, know, he, uh, except for, for, you know, like, where did he get that money? And how how, can extraction happen to get there? So yeah, so um, I think that's one of the biggest things is this affordability crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And there's just so many ways that the concentration of capital, where it stands today, hits people's lives and affects their basic human rights, right? And I think housing, for sure, is one of them in our district. I think another basic or human right is a livable climate and a livable future. Mm-hmm. So because my district is quite young, like you said, I have Green New Deal on my platform. I have not had a single to date constituent pushback <laughs> on that, which is kind of That's wild, good. right? It's just like, you know, just like, there are other issues I get pushback on, but that one is everyone just nods along. It was like, of course, of course. Yeah, it makes total sense. So I think that that's something that is really critical to this district. Um, And finally, it's a district also that is very diverse. We have a high immigrant population, about a fourth of our residents. Uh, Not all of them are voters, but they are still our residents and they still equally matter um, to our society. And so, you know, immigration reform is something really critical, too, because although a lot of immigration issues are largely legislated at the federal level, there are a number of things that we can do at the state level. And largely, Massachusetts has failed at all the kind of ways that most immigrant advocacy groups assess, you know, state Mm -hmm. level legislation. So anyway, that's just a little bit of summary of like my district, as well as just like what issues are affecting people's day to day lives here. Yeah, no, I mean, those, those, I think, living in the district are all very clearly pressing. And I actually kind of want to unpack each one of those, because I think they're good jumping off points. Yeah. So I mean, one thing that you said at the end there was that Massachusetts is, you know, it gets kind of a low grade, I I think, Mm -hmm. as far as as, not just on immigration, but on a number of 
yeah. progressive vectors where you might think of Massachusetts as a liberal democratic haven. And mm-hmm. I think for for those of us that live here that are, that are um, progressive or left, the talk doesn't always match the walk. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you first on housing, just a little bit about the trajectory, the historical trajectory of rent control mm-hmm. um, in Massachusetts and, you know, why we don't have it now and, and sort of where it stands yeah. and what you see as a, as the path to do that as there's so much development that's happening, you know, right here in this district in, in Union Square in Somerville. Absolutely. That was a great question. So, and I just want to take one little step back to point out that housing is just one example of how corporate interests have been largely driving our state policies, right? And so this, the rent control example is actually one example of that. In 1994, there was a referendum on the ballot that was put forth by real estate and, you know, developer interests, right, corporate interests, to put a ban on rent control in the state. So there's a Mm -hmm. statewide ban at the moment. And until we lift that ban, there's actually very little we can do in terms of addressing what these, you know, residents down the street are facing in terms of a 30% rent hike. And the history is that, you know, a lot of money was poured into this ballot referendum. It lost by a very small margin. I'm going to mess up the exact number. I think it's like one point something percent. And interestingly, you know, it's something that we voted statewide, but the cities that had rent control voted overwhelmingly in favor of keeping. Mm. And so that's just one example where corporate money and corporate interests, right, have sort of trumped the will of people and to put this sort of blanket policy in place. And, you know, housing is a tricky one because unless you live in a area where there's a affordable housing crisis, the issues that you're facing day to day, it does not resonate to that same level, right? Mm-hmm. Frank, right? It's just not the same when most of your districts are homeowners in a rural area. It's just that this is not the, the case you're facing. And then I guess another thing I'll say too, just related to that, right, in terms of interests and where housing stands right now, we are not a very tenant friendly state, right? Because mm-hmm. even just this like 30% rent hike I was talking about, that touches on so many other issues around housing, right? Especially around field evictions. Mm-hmm. So people push back legally, right, and win. Their name is still going to show up on an evictions rest- registry, mm-hmm. which their future landlords can look at and say, okay, I'm not taking you for housing in the future. So it's just like a lot of ingrained fear, right, in terms mm-hmm. of tenant organizing, which is why it's, it's really difficult to do this, even though that isn't every right for tenants to come together and say, we're going to negotiate collectively at the table. You're not going to impose these single, you know, rent hikes here and there. Um, another thing it points out, too, is that from the perspective of this billionaire, they're raising rents because they know that the tenants have an opportunity cost that is bigger than the rent hike, depending mm-hmm. on you know how much money they have at the moment, right? So for example, we, this is a classic thing. You're paying $2,000 for a single bedroom apartment. The corporate landlord says, we're going to hike that rent up to $2,500. And some tenants will stay and some tenants will leave. If they stay, great. The corporate landlord gets more money. If they leave, that's fine. They can always put the same apartment up on the market for $2,000 again. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that because they know that the individual tenants have to eat a cost of almost 3000 or more dollars to move. Because mm-hmm. first month, last month, realtor's fee, which is another thing that's unique to Boston, and a security deposit. And that ends up being most people's savings. So a lot of people end up just eating the cost, knowing that moving is so, well, you know, emotionally, psychologically difficult, but mm-hmm. also financially prohibitive. And that's something, too, we face a lot in this building is people are just like, I, I can't move. Well, and especially during the pandemic as right. well. Then, yeah, like I don't have friends to call upon. We're supposed to be socially distancing right now. Are you out of your you know, mind? So anyway, so yeah, that's, I think that, so that freedom from unjust fees is another point, right? And finally, there's sort of this need in general, right? When we see in Somerville, 
particularly because of this gentrification crisis. And by the way, just to another thing to state, Somerville has had the highest increase in housing prices than any other municipality in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's wild. I very much won't yeah. be able to afford to live here soon. Right, yeah. I mean, it's like it's doubled in 10 years, which is, you know, again, if you if you believe in economic models, it's really like, okay, so where did that doubling in value come from? And so mm-hmm. that's another thing to unpack. But essentially, because of this, you know, rapidly rising cost of uh, living here, and there's this need for developers to come and say, okay, I want to invest in this community. We in the public space have not pushed back enough. We sort of said, well, the developers are offering something. We should We should take it. And it's like, why are we negotiating for pennies? Mm-hmm. This is our community, right? Like, why are we giving them these sort of like tax handouts? Um, they, when they say public-private partnerships, those are handouts that were paid for by the residents of Somerville. Why mm-hmm. are we having to incentivize them to, to build here, right? So there's all these As though they won't. Problems. Right, as though they won't, right? And the real answer is because, well, developers, if you look at any sort of campaign finance filing, give out like hand, you know, like thousands of dollars per you know, developer and also their, their partner and their lawyers and everyone to municipal candidates. I mean, it's one of the biggest sources of control, particularly mm-hmm. in local government that you'll see. Um, it's just so directly blatant in terms of what developers are, are doing to our community. So it seems like there's a couple of ways to tackle that, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the broad meta problem is kind of corporate control over mm-hmm. housing stock and and the sort of interference that ha- that has on sort of state and local government. You know, and there you can kind of take that as a big picture issue, or you can mm-hmm. cut off on the margins. You can say, okay, well, the first thing that we're going to tackle are realtor fees. So the first thing that we're going to tackle, yeah. I know Boston City had a fight for a number of years of, you know, what the percentage is going to be around mm-hmm. affordable housing in a particular unit. Mm-hmm. And what way do you think about it? Do you think, okay, yeah. we're going to kind of take a two-prong strategy or one of those should be elevated more? Like, do, or do you think more about, okay, what are some um, technical tweaks that we can make to the existing mm-hmm infrastructure or are you thinking about kind of broader systemic change? And, and I guess I don't mean to, to put a gloss on that because, you know, mm-hmm. the latter is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. so how are you thinking about changing that? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that I, you know, one of the federal policies I'm most excited about and I think we should bring to the state level is a Green New Deal for affordable housing. Mm. That is public investment into housing. This is not an unprecedented idea. We've done it in this country historically, Right. Uh, we've seen countries like Sweden and Austria implement it with pretty impressive success. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea with that is essentially saying instead of kind of like each municipality groveling for this wonderful thing, the developers to bring in capital, that capital can be raised from the government. The government mm-hmm. can issue and build public housing and social housing. And that, to me, it comes down to incentives, right? Because when a developer comes, a, you know, a for-profit developer comes to say, I want to build here. What's attractive about summer is the increasing prices. But what they want, you know, if you're thinking if you put your developer hat on, is essentially how do I get as many luxury condos as possible? Mm-hmm. Because there I can charge instead of $2,000 for a bedroom, I can charge $4,000 for a bedroom. That's fantastic. What a huge return on my investment, right? I can get it, you know. So that, that is what's going through their, you know, discounted cash flow models, right? Mm-hmm. And what's been our kind of like, to your point, the other, you know, the alternative A, right, which is like, how do we build solutions on the margin is to say, okay, okay, fine. You can build your 100 units of luxury housing. We just ask that a certain percentage of them are affordable. Mm-hmm. Can you do that for us? And so do you say that that's like sort of that negotiation that goes on with the developers right. in the cities? And the public option is just saying, look, this money is coming from public funds. It is in the realm of the public and it is driven by the interests of the public. And what is our interest? Our interest is affordable housing as a human right, which is different from how do we build as many luxury condos as possible, right? And that mm-hmm. is the intention of building. When people say we need to build more affordable housing, that's what they mean. 
and sort of our kind of current, like, was it the Overton window over the past 10 years mm -hmm. has been, okay, let's just get at least a certain percentage of them from a developer built. Um, the mm -hmm. next step's probably, you know, like, let's get rent control so we can slow down the increase in prices. But even that's still like a, a you know, a solution. I, I mean, I consider rent control just guardrails. It's not like, yeah, it's really, all solution. yeah. I mean, it's yeah, just sort like, of stop things from getting worse, not right. You're make like things slowing much down. Better. Right. You're like slowing down things from getting really bad. But, you know, if you did even implement like Oregon's rent control, mm -hmm. how, and it, if people kept pushing it to the max, you would still double the price, I think, in like a few, you know, decade or two. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not like a, it's a, not a complete solution, but this whole public finance, you know, the public investment in public housing is a huge one and that you know they call it a green new deal for affordable housing because in addition to being affordable housing it's building net zero carbon building right so that will reduce our carbon emissions as a state which is also incredibly critical and it's my view and just my lens right and what's kind of driven my political orientation is what will my grandkids think mm -hmm. when we are you know in the state we are where the ipcc expects us to be and say what did i do enough to stop this Right. And this is just one example, the Green New Deal for affordable housing is one thing that we need to do. And it's mm -hmm. my belief that we need to be massively reallocating our societal resources to stop the climate crisis. And anything short of that is a lack of political courage that is setting up future generations for absolute failure and, you know, potentially loss of existence. I mean, I think you're right, right on the climate point in the mm -hmm. sense that it's, it's kind of the existential threat yeah. that we're all dealing with. But how do you, I guess, what beyond Green New Deal for housing, what mm -hmm. specific things are you are you looking at to implement on the state level? And the mm -hmm. reason I ask that is not yeah. just on a specific policy level, but also I think thankfully, but also in, in a little bit of a wary sense, the Green New Deal has become a talking point, mm -hmm. not just amongst progressives that are really caring about climate change, but also kind of across the spectrum of people that are running mm -hmm. for democratic tickets. I think yeah. one of your opponents also lists that they are in favor of a Green mm -hmm. New Deal sort of generally broadly, and, it, and it's kind of unclear what they mean by that. You know, the other race that's been getting a lot of attention here in Massachusetts is the race between Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey. And I mean, Ed Markey is uh, one of the, the co-sponsors of the Green New Deal, but right. I think Joe Kennedy also says that he's on board. Now, I think that they probably mean very different things. And I think mm -hmm. you probably mean very different things than your opponents in the race. But I, I guess I'm wondering what actions you see as making the Green New Deal specifically on a state level more than just a talking point. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Because it's kind of turned into like a signaling word, right? Like Elon Musk is a socialist now or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> right. Like, like, right? Like, so yeah, no, I totally hear you. Um, yeah, so I completely agree. And then to just kind of add clarity around what does it mean to have a Green New Deal mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, to me, like just to, to describe the ethos of it for myself and just like to communicate is that, you know, it is a mass mobilization and reallocation societal resources. So we're not talking, oh, a few, you know, $10 million there, $100 million there. I'm talking like, we need billions in funding for this, right? Like we can end homelessness next session if we want to. We can ensure people have affordable housing. So these are not these are made made up problems, right? And people kind of act like they're sort of like inevitable. Gosh, it's the rule of the market, and so you know some people are just gonna not be housed, and we know that's just not the case. Is what um, it is. You know, what it is, what it is, right? That's just the laws here. Um, no, so I think that that's um, that's one piece of just the level of the ambition, right? And what it means to fight for a green new deal is that need of like saying we are starting with the problem first, which is climate crisis, and how do we get to, you know, offsetting that, at least in the resources that are under our control. And in my, you know, in my case, it would be Massachusetts mm -hmm. on a timeline that fits with what IPCC is saying, which is we have 10 years. And so to me, I think anything short of that is not a Green New Deal. 
and that comes with like a the, what what you know the layer below that is like all right so what are the solutions exactly because we can debate all day what that means in terms of getting to 100% renewable but you know that means right things like buildings are a big source of our carbon emissions let's fix that we put money into fixing that too transportation is the most you know uh, fastest growing as well as the largest one you know industry that you know increase you know, affects carbon emissions the highest right is that's that's one that we can you know change at the state level mm-hmm. um, and we can completely almost eliminate i mean you know i mean like, there are like ambitious solutions to get to that um, and it's like anything that isn't that is not a green new deal but yeah the fact that it's an idea rather than like a concrete like allocate this much funding right mm-hmm. leads to sort of like confusion um, and I think one thing too that also another aspect of Green Deal is really important, or Green New Deal is really important, is that it is led by unions, environmental justice communities, and environmental advocacy groups, right? Mm-hmm. And so when people say like, "Oh, I'm the author of a Green New Deal," I'm just like, "Wait, what?" Like, you just you completely like you know contradict yourself. And I've actually had candidates in this area like do exactly that. We were like, "Wait, how, how did he?" doesn't make sense yes um, i personally like, meet, yeah did you meet like with all the building trades i don't understand you know so like there's like <laughs> that piece of like you know there's a green new deal table right now that meets you know regularly mm-hmm. to craft this legislation but the reason why it needs to be led by those three groups is one environmental you know we're looking at it by a lens of equity environmental justice communities are disproportionately affected it is racialized right it tends to be immigrant communities who are put on the front lines of where fossil fuel companies decide to build a, mm-hmm. a power plant or, you know, something that has negative health effects. Um, and actually, Somerville is also an environmental justice community, um, just, you know, off, especially around the uh, Route 93 corridor. Mm-hmm. That is where, the, you know, significantly elevated levels of pollution. And then, you know, the union piece is also really important because we're not here to create a new, like, green capitalism, right? Where right. you get, like, your, you know, green version of Eversource just, like, you know, <laughs> profiting off this amazing investment, right? It needs to be worker-led. It needs to be unionized workers, right? It needs to be also, it is a jobs program as well, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way. And that's why it's called New Deal because it's related to, you know, it's inspired from FDR's New Deal. And then, of course, having the environmental groups also at the table, like Sunrise, Mass Power Forward is the coalition in Massachusetts. Then the three groups leading together to craft this is what makes it a Green New Deal. And that's another thing, too, when people share, you know, asking, like, what's the difference between yourself and your opponent? I have experience working with all three of those groups, right? Like, Mm -hmm. through my advocacy and through my work. And I think, like, as a legislator, that is a necessity. You cannot just sit in your room and say, okay, I'm going to draft this wonderful idea if you don't have the buy-in of the people who are going to be most impacted. So I think that's a really critical way to just change the way we think about legislation. Cause we do have this mm-hmm. sort of mentality. I call it the entrepreneurship fallacy, right? This idea that like some great genius individual is just going to come up with something awesome. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, the, the entrepreneur version of a public policy expert, just like go, you know, just let, let them handle it. Like let the experts handle it. Let the professionals, you know, handle this. And we'll just, we'll just go back to sleep. Um, that's fundamentally not the ethos of something like the green new deal. Um, yeah, it's very much a movement built right. kind of kind of thing. And I think people do, like you're saying, really often mm-hmm. forget the labor pieces. And yeah. I mean, we have alternative energy companies pitching, mm-hmm. you know, their services throughout Massachusetts, and some of them are great, and some of them are really predatory. Yeah. Um, and so it, it definitely is something that could be really easily greenwashed and mm-hmm. we could just go go on. You know, you talked about kind of the ambitious visions of things we could pass, you know, massive yeah. public infrastructure for public transportation, you know, which I would love to see. I have no idea what the the T, which is our subway here in Massachusetts or in Boston and a little bit outside is going to look like post-pandemic, but um, you know, I think there's some really good options for public transportation, but you kind of have a problem here, right, which is mm-hmm. both a Republican governor and a state house that historically has gotten very few 
legitimately progressive things passed. And, you know, some people point to controlling and or strong yet inadequate leadership from Speaker DeLeo and other Mm -hmm. people in the House. And so I'm wondering how you envision bringing in the kind of progressive wave and like how that's going to work with the people that you kind of have to work with at this moment, at least. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, and I would even go as far to say that the Massachusetts State House is regressive. Mm-hmm. And just no one says it, but it is fundamentally regressive. We have an austerity state. We have cut taxes more than any other state except for Alaska and Arizona since 1978. That's wild. Actually, I didn't so it's know. wild. Yeah, yeah, no. So there's a lot, and I can, I can rattle off even more, you know, a number of these <laughs> statistics. I won't, I'm more, yeah, but anyway, so the, yeah, no, Massachusetts, the state house is, is, is in pretty dire, you know, situation. And I think one thing I'll say is like kind of back to that whole entrepreneurship point, right? Because mm-hmm. we love heroes, right? Like that's our mm-hmm. thing. We love like, I mean, we don't love Mark Zuckerberg anymore, but we did at some point because we're like, wow, look right. at what this wow. wonder kid did. Or Elon right? Musk now. Or Elon like, Musk, yeah. right. And like, I think the same thing uh, applies to like Governor Baker and DeLeo. Mm-hmm. Yes, I fundamentally disagree with their for, you know, political orientation. They are a problem. Um, but to just leave it at the, like, those two big figureheads and say, that's it. Um, we just got to do something about them. And I hear that all the time where mm-hmm. people are like, if we just got rid of DeLeo, let's go to Winthrop and like knock him out. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. as if like the systems like, and anyone who's worked in, you know, racial justice work, gender oppression, like class struggles understands that it's not about some figurehead, mm-hmm. right? It, these are structural problems. It's a systemic problem. You don't end racism by like knocking out David Duke. That's just mm-hmm. not how it works, right? I mean, we didn't damn, even end slavery I, I, that simply. Damn, yeah. I thought it was going to be that easy. Oh, I know, right? Like, and the people want those kind of like simple solutions, right? If we just win this one battle, we'll be done. Um, and so that's where my approach and my campaign is about is that need for systemic change. And that's what I tell my voters. I say, look, I want to fight for Somerville's values, but with the current state, it is not possible. Mm-hmm. But I'm here to change the rules of the, the game and to ch- challenge those. And so I think one thing I'll say, because the reason why the system exists the way it does is uh, I'd say two things. One, a massive amount of complicity that mm-hmm. you have within the, the, both within the state house, but also with the state house and their voters, right? And who engages with their state reps? Mm-hmm. Who pushes back on them? Um, and so when I say like, I want to bring people with me into the state house, what that means to me is one, through kind of a tool or tactic of transparency, we get recorded votes. Because part of why like everyone's gone to sleep in our state is because they just don't record votes. It has to be unanimous and otherwise they just don't record it. Yeah, which is, um, is wild. Which is <laughs> wild too, right? Like, I mean, like the one thing I tell people this is another fun statistic. Last year, 2019, a whole year of a legislative session, right? We've had five votes that materially change people's, you know, affects people's lives. So, no, you know, nothing that's procedural or anything like mm-hmm. that, right? Or like, oh, we set up a commission to study something. That doesn't count. Mm-hmm. It changes someone's life. And also separated our current, you know, state rep, Denise Provo, who's the most prog- one of the most progressive in our state, from the most conservative Democrat. There were only five votes where they did a different thing. But, I mean, I mean which, little, which seems you know. <laughs> like nuts in, in any kind of normal right. political, yeah. like, functioning system. Exactly. And so what essentially happens is because they don't record votes, you know, the state has done this tiny incremental thing in the news articles, like they did a thing and no one's like, hey, it could have been a better thing. Or maybe we could have made that thing a little more ambitious. It's mm-hmm. just like we did it. Right. And I'll just give one example, this uh, moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. That is a good thing. Is it the best thing we could have got? No, because it's... Is actually, it a rent freeze? No. No, it's not a rent freeze. Um, it, also, it only says that during this period of time, which by the way, only extends for 40 days after the uh, state of the emergency, that you'd have to pay back all your rent by then. Mm-hmm. So you tell me which you know, working class or middle class person can pay back months, back months of rent that they couldn't afford before in the course of like a little over a month. 
Right. right. Not like, to, no not to mention that it's, you know, the enforcement is super, like I have clients that are getting evicted right, right now. Still. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, and like, there's a you know, lack of clarity around that. So there's that, but then it's basically projected like this amazing win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying it wasn't a win. It was an improvement. Right. But there was no debate or votes on like how we could have made it stronger, who voted which way on each piece. Right. That's why I mean like a complete lack of transparency. So I'm using this kind of need for transparency as a tool to force votes. Um, and we can do that. We have enough organizing in the state house right now to make that happen. And I think that I can lead the way on that. And a lot of it is just kind of putting up with the pressure um, mm-hmm. because you get a lot of blowback for that. Cause the last thing they want is to have a recorded vote. Cause then you're going to like make your colleagues look bad. How rude would that be? It'd be so um, rude. Why would yeah, you do quite that? Frankly, I don't care. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so there's that. Um, but then when you pull people in is when people find out that this vote happened and their rep voted a way that they don't accept. Right. Which is, almost always the case, right? Mm-hmm. They can they can respond to that and they engage with their reps. It also brings different people engaging with their reps, not the usual, you know, every kind of district has your very hyper-involved politicos. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about those people. Those people are already involved and also those people structurally tend to be generally more well-off, generally more white and generally, you know, like comfortable. I want to bring in a different group of people talking to their reps, right? And I'll just give like one example, a concrete example of when yeah. we've seen this happen. Um, last fall, I organized to stop a corporate tax break. This corporate tax break was slid into the budget. It was not, it was like really like a, you know, one liner that we like caught, right? And we're like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, why are we decoupling from the IRS tax code? This sounds really consequential and detrimental. And it was. Um, and we, um, the reps were giving five hours to file an amendment to this 50 page bill that pertained to the IRS tax code. So that's the kind of limits they're facing with, by the way, too. That's the, like, this is why mm-hmm. there's no transparency. They were given five hours to push back. We fortunately got a rep who did push back. And then effectively, the public had from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. the next day to, I guess, review a 50-page bill and 96 amendments and tell their rep about it. The press didn't cover this because that timeline is so short, right? This is how quickly they just, like, you know, knock things through. Um, But we made a big stink about it. Um, And we actually, you know, organized the state reps in the building to force a vote on removing this corporate tax break from the supplemental Mm -hmm. budget. And we were told inside the building, right, you're going to look like a fool so stupid you know you're only going to get like nine people to vote with you mm-hmm. so it's going to go down in flames nine to 151 so have fun with that and we did let it go down in flames according to their you know threats and we also mobilized thousand people to call their reps saying what the hell are you doing if you vote for this corporate tax break? Mm-hmm. this is insane um when our t is defunded we don't fund our health care we don't have you know our schools are you know facing funds. why are you passing a corporate handout right now and as a result it was like the one time i've seen in my lifetime or mm-hmm. DeLeo didn't get what he wanted. Because of that backlash, right? Mm-hmm. Effectively, the Senate was like, we're not touching this. We've gotten so much press about this. I'm getting calls nonstop. We are not letting this through. This is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example, right? That this is just one weird corporate tax break, right? But imagine if we did that with wage theft, mm-hmm. with public schools funding, or with canceling the MCAS, because why are we still right. testing students when they're not in school, right? I mean, there's all these things that we can say, look, if you aren't going to give us the goods, Let's get a vote on it and let's hear what your constituents actually have to say. So, I mean, that brings up for me kind of a a meta question about Mm -hmm. what what you're doing, which is, you know, you did organizing particularly around transparency in government in Massachusetts. You've done uh, economics consulting and and sort of like in in more in the private sector. And I guess I'm wondering, not so much a personal journey question, but more a why do you think that being in elected office in state is an effective way to make change? Uh, right. Cause it seems like you've, yeah. you know, you've dabbled in a bunch of different ways to, yeah. <laughs> to change things and like, why this, why now? 
Yeah, I think in terms of why this, I mean, one, it was a little bit, just to be totally frank with you, it was serendipitous. I did not mm-hmm. know um, Denise Provo was not running for re-election. She's my yeah. current state rep. Um, so there was a little bit of serendipity with this um, in terms of this opportunity coming up. But the real reason why, you know, what, we, we still had to face a choice of like, do I keep doing active, you know, the, this kind of organizing around trans- state house transparency, or am I more effective in that building? Mm-hmm. Um, and myself and my co-founder and, you know, the people closest to me, we came to the conclusion it made the most sense uh, to go into the state house because there is a need for someone with a perspective around narrative mm-hmm. and the need to, and the experience of organizing in the state house. It is incredibly rare for an organizer to be in elected office still today, which I think needs to change. Um, and I think that's what makes AOC so exciting because she comes mm-hmm. from organizing. That is why she's so effective. She is looking at, she has a very sharp eye for the narrative and she is so good at hitting hard on like where that is so critical, right? At the federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have that in Massachusetts. And instead people, when you talk to state reps about like, hey, doesn't this seem like a great idea? I'll just give one example. I was talking to one state rep saying like, why don't you force a vote on the Healthy Youth Act? Mm-hmm. This is a bill that would force, you know, that would require sex ed to teach consent and LGBTQ medically, you know, medically accurate LGBTQ, LGBTQ affirming sex ed. Mm-hmm. It's not a controversial issue, really. Like, do you know what I mean? In Mass- or you'd think in Massachusetts. Think, but- right. And it's not. I mean, like the, the data, you know, in the polling shows like 90% of the pop, you know, population is like for teaching consent. So it's like, it's not a, it's not a bold thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, well, you know, what if governor Baker does this? What if they do this procedural thing? What if, what if, what if, what if Mm -hmm. my eye is not on like, gosh, what will so-and-so say? My eye is like, what will the movement think of this? Because Mm -hmm. that's where we're going to get people into the building. Right. That's Mm -hmm. why we need to like, we need to use this to push for organizing. And they're not really thinking from an organizing lens, right? Mm-hmm. They're just thinking like, well, okay, I'm just trying to get this bill through. And like the reality is like people never get their bills through. It's like, why are we still playing this game? You know what I mean? It's right. like this constant groveling for like my one bill. And does that feel really productive? There's um, also like a reframing of what victory actually means right. Right? when you're building and organizing and you're like, yeah, look, there are going to be losses. Like we yeah. have, have, like, will accept some losses, but like those losses are building rather than, yeah. you know, sort of the thing that you're describing of like, okay, like it's a victory if the bill happens and if it doesn't, well, I guess we're shit out of luck. Yeah. And I think that that, that was the thing where I was like, we need a candidate or a person in that building, one person, I just want one who is running in service of the movement, mm-hmm. who is seeing themselves as an instrument for progressive change, not for their career. Not, and I'm not saying like everyone else in the building is like for their career. I'm just saying that people are not thinking from that lens of like, mm-hmm. how do I run in service of a movement? I'll just give one more example too of this, like where that was just so profound for me. Last fall, we passed a, a major education bill, funding bill. We just haven't funded low income students in the state for 25 yeah. years. And we finally were like, okay, we're going to like maybe do that. Um, and so that's, that's what happened last fall. And the teachers unions, which one of the teachers unions in the state, MTA, is the largest union in New England, mm-hmm. right? It's 117,000 members strong. Asked for an amendment from the House. And it already passed in the Senate. And they're like, we just need this amendment that clarifies language around local control. They couldn't get a rep to just hold that amendment. Just like That's hold wild. it, not even vote for it, just hold it. Just like mm-hmm. file it, you know, like press the send button. And I was just like, if the largest union in New England is left begging, right, state reps to do this one thing for them, like what, what chance does any local have, right? Any, what, what mm. chance does any small grassroots, 117,000 members strong? I mean, if the, 
the teachers union wants something, they should be able to get it in a democracy pretty simply, right? Well, that's a good, I mean, that's a good question though, right? Like what, I mean, what is, because right, like one theory of, of power would be that, well, actually they just have a bunch of members. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost insane that they wouldn't be able to, to get someone to press that because that person would get kicked out of office. And I sort of think about this in the same yeah. way where you're like, well, look, there's some really uncontroversial things. You know, we, so in Massachusetts, there's been a debate over the past a very long time now over whether we're going to pass something called the Safe Communities Act or sort yeah. of different versions of, of very mild immigration reform. Like, yeah. v- frankly, like not, very mild. not yeah. something particularly progressive, but like a, a slightly better. Mm-hmm. Been completely unable to do it. And Baker has also floated conservative counter bills and there's sort of yeah. been a back and forth and we've been unable to do it. And at least from what I've seen, some of the best organizing that's happened has been immigrants' rights movements and immigrants' rights mm-hmm. groups that have gone to the state house and really tried to push people, and yet very little substantive movement, a little bit of yeah. movement, but not a lot. And it's sort of so to piggyback kind of on your point about the MTA and looking through that lens, like what what is the disconnect between where at least there is some power on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it would seem like well, okay, then people will be primaried or people will be shamed or yeah. you know whatever this is why is that not happening here in Massachusetts? Is there something particular to the way that our system is working or there just aren't enough people in the state house that feel accountable to movements or what is, what is the yeah. problem? Oh, I think that's uh, I mean, definitely the accountability is critical. So uh, there's a few layers of the problem, right? One is that if we don't take the vote, who do we blame? And I'll just say, you know, safe communities act is one example. Wage theft has 70% co-sponsorship. It mm. is a super majority co-sponsorship. So if someone just forced the vote on that thing, we should in theory, get it right but we've never voted on it the Mm -hmm. house has just never voted on it which is wild to me that we go session after session after session senate passes it unanimously i mean republicans are for this bill right it's like Mm -hmm. that mediocre and the house just doesn't even vote on it right Mm -hmm. and it's the same with safe communities identical safe communities act because last year the senate passed it nearly i think two people might have dissented but nearly unanimously and the house just didn't even vote on it Mm -hmm. it's like what it where is the lack of like you know this, so the, one is just like, you know, there's nothing for people to react to. Because if you as a concerned constituent, talk to your rep, and I'm sure the hundreds of thousands of people have done this at this point, and say, hey, like, I really care about the Safe Communities Act. Are you an immigrant rights champion? And the reps will go, yeah. Sure, sure. I press that button. I'm good. <laughs> um, so, like, I mean, it really is a button. It's kind of funny. I should, yeah, I want to screen cap that. Anyway, but yeah, so they, you know, they essentially um, say to their voters, like, I'm doing really good work. And there's no actual like record of their work, right? And the mm-hmm. way I describe it to people is like, imagine, you know, I've worked a lot of jobs in my life. I can't think of a single one of those jobs where I didn't have to show my work to somebody. You know what I mean? Like, to, like even with a babysitter, I still have to like show like a, a living child and say like, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, this is like first grade math yeah. homework kind of stuff. Totally. Right, right. And it's just like, this is the only job I found in the planet where it's like, you can just like, you know, cause the legislators, all they do is like their only responsibility is really voting. Mm-hmm. And like, you didn't have to show your work. Right. Like, so like that's, the, there's that kind of absurdity. So that's one piece of the problem. Um, another piece of the problem too. And this is why I was compelled to run mm-hmm. was like, even just with these talks. Cause I was like, let's get a state rep to force the vote on the state communities act. Like it's eight years running. Mm-hmm. And also I want the vote before Trump might be out of office and we mm-hmm. all go back to sleep again because that's what happens when a Democrat is in office. We just think immigration is not a problem anymore, which is absolutely false, at least at the national level. That's a national narrative, right? It dominates. Like, mm-hmm. you know, well, and on the state the level. Whole I mean, like, 
we yeah, do a oh, lot totally. of immigration detention in Massachusetts oh, yeah. at a number of facilities across the state. So it's totally, yeah, yeah. And it's just like it's a problem when we have a Republican in the White House. But anyway, that's a different problem that I won't, you know, try to <laughs> today. But um, but yeah, anyway, case I was like, to now is the time. Mm-hmm. Now is the moment. Like, vote on it. It's been eight years. Like, and this is the most mediocre. I mean, it's just so basic. It's like saying like we just can't use local police force resources with ICE. Like right, which is—I mean, the most conservative constituents in my district are fine with that. Yeah, um, it's extremely you know I mean? basic. It's very basic, and I've had that conversation like over and over again too. And it's like it's very like, oh, okay, it's not that bad. I thought you were gonna like, you know, open the you know, floodgates. It's like, no, this is really not that at all. But anyway, so yeah, and so the thing is, like, as I was talking to state reps, be like, so can someone force a vote on it? It's like this like hot potato, no one wants to hold. Mm-hmm. People are like, well, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a person of color. Oh, it's not really my district. Oh, it's not this. It's not that. There's all these like a hundred reasons, right? It's not politically feasible. And I think that part of the problem too is that we have a state house, 160 representatives. Almost all of them are playing sort of this like inside game, mm-hmm. right? Of like, let me just work relationships. Let me just get, you know, DeLeo happy enough, and then maybe he'll give me this like small amount of something, right? And my thing is like in any political situation or any like, I don't know, any life situation, right? It's always helpful to have good cops and bad cops, right? Mm-hmm. And there's like, literally, it's like, it's a room full of good cops and there's no bad cops. And so, so you want to come in and you want to come in and be the bad cop. Well, yeah. so, but yeah, do yeah. you think, I don't know, but mm-hmm. right, like, yeah, do you yeah. think that you'll be Im- immune from this? Because, and I, and I don't mean to call them, oh, I, I think they're very, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. think the, I think they're, you know, very yeah. good, good reps, but like, you know, there's Mike Connolly, mm-hmm. there's Nico Laguardo, Trump Nguyen, they're like, yeah. you know, there's, there's people that like have progressive politics and are sort of like doing some things, but like, I, I don't hear, see them forcing those sorts of votes. And I guess I'm wondering like, you know, what, what, why, why are you different? Why am I different? Yeah, I love that question. You're the third person to ask me that. And I think it's actually the best question anyone's asked me on this. I get asked a lot of questions and this is like by far my favorite one. Because I think it's like the best, que- you know, it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason, I'll tell you why, because it, it says, one thing too is like, it's not, politics is not just about issues, it's about character, mm. right? And what brings you to the movement and who are you serving and who are you running for? And sadly, a lot of people run for themselves or they maybe they run mm-hmm. for the, their best friends. I don't know, you know, their yeah, family, sure. right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean like this, you know, there's that. So I love this question because it gets to kind of, I think, what sets me apart from other candidates. And for me, my orientation and just my experience, and this is where I think organizers are so needed in the state house. I know what that feels like to bust, you know, everything, you know, to hustle, to get like 10 phone banks set up and, you know, mobilize people, do all the deep mm-hmm. community organizing and be like, all right, here it is, Right. And the state rep or the, you know, elected official just turns their back and go, actually, I changed my strategy. Actually, I'm not into this anymore, right? I know how that feels, right? And I know mm-hmm. how, like, the, just to give, go back to the MTA example, how the, the, the head of the, that union felt when that amendment was withdrawn. I mean, they were livid, right? And rightfully mm-hmm. so. They did all this work and they didn't agree to the plan. And knowing how that feels, right, the idea that I would make my supporters feel the way these reps made me feel mm-hmm. makes me sick to my stomach, to be totally honest. I think it it's captures a question, who are you running for? Mm. Because I'm not running for the speaker's approval. I'm not running for any elected officials approval, really. Mm-hmm. I'm running for the people who I've organized with. These are the people that we've struggled and we've done, phone, you know, d- done organizing for immigrant rights, right? We've done, I mean, I've done like weekly phone banks for the Safe Communities Act. I've worked with the teachers unions to fight for that school funding. And I've worked with people across the Commonwealth on transparency. I've worked with Sunrise mm-hmm. to get 100% renewables. 
just a vote, not even like passed, just a vote, right? <laughs> so th- those are the people I run for. They are the h- number one priority. And how they feel and what they think is way more important to me than what Speaker DeLeo thinks, what the governor thinks, or anyone in positions of power think. Um, and I think that's what makes me different. Yeah. Well, so I, I don't want to keep you for too long, but I have two, at least two yeah. more questions. I guess one is kind of to to reel back. Where do you place your moment or the genesis of your politicization that kind of led you on mm. the politics that you have now? And, and like, yeah. what was that evolution like? Did, were you just, did you just like wake up one day and you're like, yeah, you know what? Like, I like I'm going to be a candidate that like the DSA is going to endorse or mm-hmm. did was it like a slow progression? Um, and what kind of were catalyzing moments? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, definitely the examples I just gave you in the last question were probably catalyzing mm-hmm. moments, right? Just sort of like doing all this work and then seeing like a movement let down by one person, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean? Like that was just like, it was just outrageous to me. And I was like, we need a, the way I say it's like, you know, we don't need allies, we need accomplices, mm-hmm. right? That's okay. Like Black Lives, I think Black, there was an article about Black Lives Matter that was like, we don't need white allies, we need white accomplices. Yeah, well, you um, got to be willing to get arrested with each other. Right, exactly, right? Like, yeah, I don't need you to post about like all mm-hmm. our struggles, right? I need you to actually fight for them. And so I think that those were definitely catalyzing moments. I think in terms of just like the bigger like arc of like politicization and all that, mm-hmm. I think honestly, it probably started pretty young. I mm. kind of grew up on like two sides of a widening class divide, mm-hmm. right? Um, my mom was a single mom. She's an immigrant. She, you know, worked, she was a flight attendant. She was represented by a union. And um, I saw year after year how her colleagues got worse and worse contracts. Like I like saw mm. firsthand the carving out of an American worker, right? And corporations benefiting from it. And then on the other side of that, right? Because I worked in economics and I kind of found myself analyzing how corporations break the rules of the market mm-hmm. um, and understanding so deeply like what is going on behind that curtain. And it was like, so it was kind of this weird moment for me when we, I, like I learned about Carl Icahn. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the um, corporate rating investor who bought TWA where my mom used to work. It essentially, he pushed it down to bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, he made, I think, probably 500 million or some insane amount of money off of that. Just a cool um, 500. Yeah, cool no 500. Um, you know, he walked away from that with the unions being blamed for being, quote, inefficient. He's this kind of some kind of financial genius, right, that people look up to. And that's where we were left. So there's sort of this like kind of coming circle, I guess, to seeing both like the struggles of growing up in the US with a, you know, working family, mm-hmm. and what is going on sort of behind those closed doors. And so I think there's that sort of outrage of having to connect those two, because I do think they're, mm-hmm. they're not held accountable enough, whether those are corporations, whether those are, um, you know, elected leaders, right, who are kind of upholding the system. I My belief is like with many kind of movements and struggles, the narrative is on our side. Mm-hmm. Right. The civil rights movement happened because morality was on their side, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, it just, it, that, that was just clear. And yes, it, they, it was a battle, right? I mean, to, you know, of, of all battles, it was the battle. But they had the moral authority in a way, right? Mm-hmm. That you don't kill people for their race, right? You don't not let people vote because of their race. Like, I mean, those things were just like, it's inherent, I think, somewhere in our like kind of human psyche. And I think that's the same with what's going on in terms of today. And like, we're living in a, a bigger gilded age than we've ever lived in our lifetime, but in, in mm-hmm. at least, you know, recent U.S. history. And that, that focus on narrative and that focus on getting that story out of what's going on and giving that clarity is like, that is, that is what gives voters, that is what gives people agency to participate in a democratic system. That is a strengthening of our democracy and our democracy has been largely weakened. So, mm. you know, over the de- you know, decades, and it did not start with Trump. 
right? It mm-hmm. started far below, before that. That's what's kind of drawn me politically to this work. Well, so and now now that you're campaigning and, mm-hmm. you know, the vote is, you know, coming up in, in a couple of months. Yeah. How does, I mean, this is just a, almost a logistical question, but how does campaigning work in the time of, of a okay. pandemic where you can't yeah. really do no, door knocking? Like, I'm sure you're phone banking and doing mm-hmm. stuff online and, you know, we're, we're doing this interview and I hope yeah. people will listen to it and get to know you. But, you know, in some sense, organizing is really a, like a person to person relationship building thing that's very hard to do over Zoom or over uh, the phone. And so how, how have you changed, you know, how connecting with your constituents works? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it is unprecedented what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, like any campaign right now. And yes, to your point, right? Like we don't do this work because it's fun. Mm-hmm. This is the difference between like a hobby, right? Or I, I call them like hobbyist politics, right? Mm-hmm. And like this is, we need to see this change. And that is why people are coming out to volunteer. And we do this work because it's necessary, but we also, the one nice thing about this work is the community aspect mm-hmm. of it. And like to your point, that's been really challenging. Um, and we've tried, you know, in just any way everyone else has, right? You know, we have Zoom parties, right? And we keep all the cameras on, we have try to have fun with it and like kind of build that community because people are, you know, the, on the flip side, in addition to it being very hard to build community in this time, people are really longing for it. And so I think that there's sort of, you know, I mean, it's, it's a silver lining, but that, that is one piece I think that is really critical is to continue having that focus on building community with our campaign is how we, we win and how we push our issues forward. Uh, in terms of connecting with voters, yeah, it is largely phone banking, mm-hmm. but really simply, which is just kind of, it's, for me, it's a huge bummer because it's way more fun to talk to people in person. You know, it's, it's just harder to have a deeper conversation with people over the phone, especially if you don't see eye to eye. Because um, I think that's also a responsibility of elected peoples that they talk to the most conservative voter. And mm-hmm. that is like my responsibility, right? To, to talk to them why I think the way I think and why I'm, I'm fighting for what I fight for. You know, not to just sort of like divide people into, oh, this is the blue district, it's the purple district and we're done here. Um, I don't think, again, because I think narrative and the morale, you know, moral side of this is on our side, I'm happy to talk to anyone about the issues that I run on and I look mm-hmm. forward to it. And it's just a little easier when it's in person, right? Just because it, it helps with the kind of, understanding and human connection um mm-hmm. that's a bit harder on the phone unfortunately so that's really the biggest difference is those two and then like yeah i just travel less now yeah, yeah <laughs> so yeah so i think yeah there's that i mean there's like other challenges like fundraising is really tough for anyone it's tough mm-hmm. for marky it's tough for me it's tough for anyone you know up and down the ballot but yeah you know but i think that there's you know there's another piece of it which is that everyone's home Everyone's yeah. in front of a computer. So I ask people to pull up their computer and, you know, type in my website so they can see it. You know, I mean, there's like things like that, which, you know, we didn't do before. So, but it is, it is tough. And I mean, I think one thing too, that I'll, you know, whenever we do get to back to actually meeting people in person again mm-hmm. is, yeah, I'll need to do that work again to, you know, like knock yeah. on doors and meet voters. So I think that's just so important to me that, that we do that. And I think that's another reason why, you know, I'm a very strong proponent of like people who run successful grassroots campaigns. Because if you won because you sent a bunch of mailers, like you're not going to be a good candidate. Mm-hmm. That's just it. You know what I mean? Like if you didn't actually try to understand your voters' issues and you didn't get involved with what's, you know, constituents are facing, how would I find out if I wasn't active in organizing about this 30 unit building that's facing a 30% rent hike? Right? Like what yeah. kind of candidate are you if you don't, you know, hear that and, and, and act on that? And I think like another piece I'll just say too is that, you know, people feel like knocking on doors and talking to voters like this like necessity is like sort of like eating your greens. And I really don't see it that way at all. I think that, you know, yes, before I started running for office, right, I, I knew about these issues, right? I knew about the Safe Communities Act. I understood kind of on an intellectual level, like what we need to do for our housing and on the policy front of that. But it wasn't really until I started talking to voters 
day in Mm. and day out. And I mean, just over and over again, people sharing with me that I used to know everyone on this block and now I know nobody, everyone got displaced. Mm -hmm. And this is, I'm, I'm scared for my kids. I'm, you know, that, that emotional part, right. That draws us to politics and draws us to fight for the change we need to see. I wouldn't have gone that without going door to door and meeting these mm-hmm. voters. And that like sharpens, right. My focus on what we need to do and what we need to accomplish. Right. And that kind of helps me in addition to like, again, prioritizing the people I'm organizing with, you know, as like who I center in my work once I'm in the state house. I mean, the constituents are just in the same place as well. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I'm fighting for those people. When you disconnect yourself from that, that's when it's easy to sort of shift and slide away from your priorities, right? And mm-hmm. slide away and say, okay, maybe we're just getting some good compromise here and I'll, I'll keep having that progressive brand, but I won't do that work anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. You know, we, I mean, because Massachusetts is a little bit disappointing, right? Like we... Mm, a little. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's like constant, it's like a constantly like having a friend that says that they're like really down for the movement and then, and then doesn't do shit. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean, in the, in the national or in the primaries, Massachusetts voted for Biden. It didn't even vote for Warren, like the local, like where you could have been like, okay, that's the local person. Yeah. They voted for Biden, let alone Sanders. Like, right. Like, and so it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's hard here because on, on one hand, I think there's a narrative that there's like, there's a progressive groundswell and all it really Mm -hmm. needs is to be unleashed. And then there's another narrative, which is like, actually Massachusetts really isn't that progressive. Like it's, it's sort Mm -hmm. of like safe liberal or like safe middle. The way I think about it too, is that, cause yeah, we have sort of, I call them like false dichotomies, right? Mm -hmm. Which are like the sort of left, right dichotomy, right? And like somehow you're just somewhere on this like line, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like from left, left to right, right. And it's like the you know you can have other false dichotomies like NIMBY and YIMBY as if like there's no mm-hmm. other alternative. It's just you that either you're you're yes in my backyard or you're no in my backyard. And I think the same applies because I think actually when you use a different kind of dichotomy, right, which is how much neoliberalism affects the state, right, mm-hmm. and how much we have corporate interests in the state, right. So look at Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, right. These are all states with very corrupt state legislators, mm-hmm. legislatures. And also we have one of the highest income inequality in the country, mm-hmm. right? And so when you look at sort of a different lens, apart from being like progressive and like, hey, we vote D every time. D is good. R right. bad, right? You know what I mean? Like, like if you look at a different lens of like, oh, wow, our state, you know, when you look at the, the ballot question for the nurses last year or for oh, like, you know, the charter school cap lifting mm-hmm. and you look at the amount of money that poured in, right, from the health insurance companies mm-hmm. and the, you know, you know the private hospitals or like you know the the financiers who just love charter schools right you're like oh my gosh like does vermont deal with this i mean i no not to that level right and so in some ways like we're almost like for us what excites me about working in massachusetts is the problems at hand is sort of like the emblematic problems of our country Mm -hmm. but it's more concentrated here because we have that like wealth inequality we have incredibly wealthy interests who are really trying to fight off right in the midst of the Gilded Age. For me, that's more exciting because I know that's not the paradigm that we've been told through national media, right? That it's like, it's all about like, let's just swing those, you know, let's with a swing left, right? Like get, get all those blue states in. I'm not saying it's like a bad strategy. I get that. Like, I understand like you want to have- But it's not. Paradigm. But like, that's it's not, not transformational. Right. And that's not capturing what's going on here, mm-hmm. right? Which is that there are like some very concentrated corporate wealthy interests that are trying to take over our government. They are trying everything they can to take over the public. 
we are at the sort of front line of that because we're in Boston and Massachusetts, right? Or like New York, I think is also similar. Well, yeah. So are you, I mean, as, as kind of a final question, are there people in other states that are where Massachusetts is on that neoliberalism spectrum mm-hmm. that you really look to and you say, okay, they're employing good strategies or that you're, you know, in touch with in community with and you're kind of building cross-state oh, yeah. strategies where you're like, mm-hmm. look, Illinois and like I think you're right right like that Illinois and New York are two prime examples of sitting somewhere where Massachusetts is on kind of the neoliberalism bullshit spectrum Mm -hmm, and you know they have some you know there are some people that have run progressive candidacies in the state house and I'm wondering if there's any lessons learned from the problems that they're facing there that translate well to Massachusetts yeah that's a really good question to be completely honest I haven't and I would like to it's just Mm -hmm. something that we haven't done I think part of the reason for that is because like you know, there's different ways these different states are bad, right? Every miserable family is miserable in a different way or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is like kind of the same with the states as well. Because I am, I'm in touch with people from Illinois. And like, you know, Ohio is not the same. It's a purple state. But each state does have like a different problem. Mm-hmm. And Illinois has like a different set of issues. And Massachusetts, our kind of poison pill is like this transparency problem is what I found. Mm. Um, versus like there's more of like an entrenched corruption problem that's a little different from never taking votes. Um, that's the case in Illinois. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, like I haven't quite like, because I've been so zoomed in on like, oh, this Massachusetts specific context, that's why. And like, just to give one example, right? Like most states, you only need like one to five reps to get a recorded vote. Massachusetts mm-hmm. needs 16. And then like about a month ago, they tried to raise it to 40. So like, you know what I mean? Like that, this has been their chosen method of, you know, <laughs> like, you know, blocking public dissent, right? Um, and so for that reason, yeah, it's been a little bit tougher to be like, oh, but what has been useful for me mm-hmm. is looking at other states because Massachusetts has this like Massachusetts exceptionalism mm-hmm. um, that I, I think is really important. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's right. <laughs> we could talk about the other structural issues around that. But when you point to California and say, hey, they're going to get to 100% renewable in like way less time than us. And they're way larger with like a bunch of like agro business and all this sort of other stuff. They also, yeah, they have a much more complex like political situation, I think, than we do having the supermajority, like the very comfortable supermajority we have. Um, I think that's been really useful. Like election day registration is another one. 20 states are Mm -hmm. ahead of us on that. And we have a really high population of students. Yeah. So like there's like ways that I've used that generally rather than that, you know, the kind of like tactical piece. Mm -hmm. But I have seen that like, I think, you know, one election, even one state rep election is so, so, so important Mm -hmm. because it really is about like, what is their orientation and theory of change? Um, And we've seen that at the federal level. And I think we've seen that a little bit in New York state as well, right? Where they elect like one firebrand who changes sort of like the dialogue and how people think about problems. And so I think that that's, that model is, I think, similar across Mm -hmm. different legislators and the need for that. And we've seen that across other countries too, right? That like you can reclaim sort of broken narratives and redefine what is the problem. And so that's what I'm running for. Well, that all sounds good to me. Do you want to tell people where they can learn more about your candidacy yeah. and, and volunteer or call yeah. or whatever they'd like? Totally. Yeah. So um, again, this is Erica Eiderhoven's campaign. So it's at electerica.com. I have a very long last name, so you don't have to spell it for the website, which is great, but it's elect and then Erica with a K.com. Um, you can also find us on Facebook. Um, if you, I think it's also Erica for rep or elect Erica as the two Facebook, Twitter handles. And so, yeah, you can definitely check us out there. You know, you'll see, we do like weekly state house updates as well. So people can learn about what's going on in Massachusetts politics. Um, and you can find out more in terms of 
volunteering, donating, um, donating your time, whatever you're able to give. So you can check us out there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Erica. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. 